Would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? I haven't said that since middle of June, but we're back. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab a blue Bible under the chairs in front of you. You can find Ephesians 2 on page 947. I'll be reading there in a minute. At long last, we are resuming our series on the book of Ephesians. We started the series a year ago, tomorrow, October 1st, and uh, then we hit Christmas, Grace Stories, a special series guiding us in our move here to Glenrock, and then after Easter, we got back to Ephesians for another eight messages or so, and then we decided to go to the Psalms over the summer because everyone's just a little bit more scattered uh, with time away. We kicked off a new ministry season Uh, in September with three more grace stories, as is our habit, and here we are. I am uh, never sure how to treat this re-entry message, as I'll call it, when we break up a series, because on one hand, background is incredibly important to understand where we are. On the other hand, it's not possible for me to spend enough time summarizing 16 sermons over the last year So, what I'll do is try to summarize some of the major themes from chapter 1 into the first part of chapter 2 and encourage you to listen to those messages on our podcast or streaming uh, from your computer at home. But uh, then uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to catch us up and then read the new passage, which is a little bit out of the ordinary, all right? Here's some of the background. The first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, neatly in three chapters each, shows us our position in Christ. This is who we are, as I, uh, our identity as sinners rescued by the Savior. And so our first series graphics focuses on the roots um, to, f- uh, to emphasize that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, as the hymn puts it. This is who you are, position chapters 1 through 3. Now live in light of that identity, practice, chapters 4 through 6. And so in the back half of the series, we'll focus on what the roots feed, the church, which should naturally produce fruit of the Spirit. Um, A little background on the city of Ephesus. It was a, a global city, as we'd call it today, connecting Asia and Europe uh, in a strategic piece of geography. And like today's New York City in Hong Kong and London and Dubai, Ephesus as a global city center was a blend of cultures and religions and nationalities and uh, perspectives of thought. And so it was an incredibly challenging place to declare that Jesus alone is Lord, not Caesar in the Roman Empire, not the goddess Artemis, whose temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus, uh, the church in Ephesus was planted by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s A.D. on his third missionary journey, Uh, and he spent more time in Ephesus than in any other place of ministry. Years later, while sitting in a Roman prison, Paul would write this letter to the Ephesians. From the beginning, you've heard me say this, if you were uh, here for the early part of the series, Paul is so overcome with praise that he lets loose with this epic 202-word run-on sentence in the original Greek language. And the key idea at the heart of God's salvation plan is this. Every spiritual blessing 
is in Christ, verse 3. In Christ. Each of us has sinned against the Creator. Each of us is guilty. Each of us is unable to, to save ourselves. We can't undo our treasonous rebellion against the King. But, verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. That idea of being united with Christ, union with Christ, is, is this. If you believe in Jesus, then what happened to Him has happened to you. And so in His death on the cross, in your place, it is as if you died to sin and rose to new life and declared victory over sin and death. He did it, so you don't have to. You get the credit because you're united to Him by faith if you trust in Him. And then Paul says at the end of chapter 1, I see these promises of God becoming reality in your life. And that motivates him all the more to pray for these Ephesians that they may know, verse 18, hope, riches, and power. Power, that theme dominates the rest of the chapter, the end of the prayer, ending with resurrection power. And that leads right into chapter 2, which unfolds how that power transforms you, starting with making you alive with Christ, because you were dead, and then raising you up with Christ, and then seeding you with Christ, forgiveness, freedom, privilege, authority. These are the gifts of God received by grace through faith. There's nothing we can boast of. Lots of people want this kind of personal and spiritual transformation. There are countless books written, uh, charismatic speakers who travel the globe, attracting incredible crowds because people want to learn how to unlock that kind of change. And that's true whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in the God of the Bible or not. There's often a desire for spiritual experience and personal change. But chapter 2 then points out that God's power also brings change in community. It's not an individualistic reality. There are messy neighbor-to-neighbor dynamics that require that kind of powerful change on a horizontal level, not merely on a vertical level. That brings us to this morning's text, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him, 
We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Two thousand years old, Lord, these words, but still needed desperately, like oxygen. Your Spirit spoke through Paul to the Ephesians. Back then, we ask that that same Spirit would speak through Paul to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up with this passage under the heading, Far, Now Near. You could tell that this passage immediately pulls us into this unique religious and cultural context. There are, there are difficult ideas here that we have to kind of try to uh, get a sense of. Paul is writing to Gentiles, the uncircumcised. Why does he call them that? Because circumcision was this Old Testament sacramental sign placed on males down to infant boys eight days old, and it served as a key distinction, a marker between Israel and all of the nations. Paul says, you Gentiles were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners to the covenants. That could be a three-part series right there. We're not going to get too deeply into those realities this morning. But um, he's setting up a case. It doesn't look good for the Gentiles. And then down in verses 14 and 15, he, he refers to the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And the background there was the law with its commands and regulations. The law given by God to His people was a good gift for harmony and health to show them the way of life, but it became a tool for racism and discord. What happened? Well, as a way of life, God showed His people, first and foremost, how to worship properly, how to come before himself as the one true God. And the law then guided the people of God by reflecting aspects of God's character, His generosity, His compassion, His holiness. So, living by the law would enable families and communities and the next generation to thrive under God's blessing. The law lived out by Israel was supposed to be a fragrant aroma that would attract the nations that would cause them to marvel, what kind of God is this, and come to Jerusalem. But instead, because of the sinful pride of the human heart, something every one of us is subject to, the law became a motivation for exclusion and separation. The law became an excuse to look down on those who were not chosen, who didn't get it, who weren't part of the insider community, who lived in ignorance. Instead of sharing her spiritual wealth, Israel hoarded it and took credit for her special status. And so when you get to Paul's first century context, what you find is racism and hostility. Obviously, this unique Jew-Gentile dynamic uh, doesn't directly impact us today. We don't live in this kind of defined um, black and white world of Jew and Gentile, but there's still all kinds of application of these key ideas. People being far from God and the desperate need for unity and peace among different people groups. All around us we see disdain 
of God and religion and of those who practice religion. We see racial divides. We see class warfare. We find deep prejudices sometimes even when we look in the mirror and discover something that we've said or thought. In every segment of society, you have people who are in, quote-unquote, and many more people who are out or outsiders who don't belong. Here's one implication of Paul's teaching here. Every horizontal person-to-person dynamic, especially when it comes to brokenness and dysfunction and discord, has as its root a vertical problem. Every problem between human beings has its root in a vertical problem between creature and creator. The Jews took this good gift from God, His holy law, and they used it as a tool for division and exclusion. The Gentiles, verse 12, were without hope and without God, literally atheos, from which we get the word atheist. This was a hopeless situation. Both sides of this dividing wall of hostility with deep issues leading to death. How do you fix this problem? You address the vertical and get that right, and then the overflow begins to heal the horizontal. Paul's first good news is in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, there is no such thing as too far gone, people who are too bad to be forgiven, utterly hopeless, not worth fighting for. Those don't exist. Why? Because there is power in the blood of Jesus. How does this play out? It's not just the Gentiles. It's not just the outsiders. It's not just the people without religion. The insiders then and today need forgiveness just as much for pride and self-righteousness for thinking ourselves worthy of God's favor. Outsiders need forgiveness for rejecting divinely revealed truth, for thinking that life can be well-lived apart from faith in the Creator. Verse 7 makes it clear that no one is immune to this need. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. You who are far away, outsiders, irreligious, those without God, and those who are near, people who are sitting in church every Sunday morning, people who say they're close to God, people who know what God has spoken through His Word. We all need peace that comes from God, and forgiveness is only offered through faith in Jesus. Whether you greatly value your self-worth or whether you're drowning in self-loathing, whether you take pride in being an insider, one of the elite, or whether you hate yourself and you despise the elite for, because you are the outsider, verse 12 applies, without hope and without God in the world, because self-worth is either an illusion or it's something that can't ever bring you security and hope. It's something that you might taste for a little season and then continue to grasp for because it melts away. Vanity of vanities, Ecclesiastes says, poof, 
something that's here one moment and gone the next. In the news this week, model Giselle Bündchen, married to the enemy, she announced, <laughs> announced her upcoming memoir. And in the press release uh, and in the interviews, she shared her struggle with increasing anxiety for the last couple of decades um, and even described these anxiety attacks um, that increasingly got worse because she didn't feel like she could measure up to the world's expectations of beauty. Hmm. In her despair, she battled suicidal thoughts. She talked about standing on a balcony thinking, this would all be so much easier if I could just jump and it'd all be over with, to escape all of that crushing pressure. Some of you envy her as you flip through a magazine, as you marvel at an Instagram selfie. But do you really think that if you had what she has, that you would be immune to the overwhelming feel, fears of inadequacy? that you would stay feeling like you're on top of the world, that you would not be um, uh, deeply affected by the criticism and the gossip that would surround your seemingly perfect life, that envy might feed self-loathing because your beauty doesn't seem to measure up. For others, her beauty might stimulate lust. Whatever you wish you had, interacting with that idea, it would never be enough. It would never be enough unless you long for what you were designed to receive and be fulfilled with. Look at verse 18. For through Him, through Christ, we both, whether insiders or outsiders, whether the most beautiful in the world or not so much, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. How? Through Christ. We both have access to the Father, oneness with, in the presence of the Creator God Himself, who has created us to be most fulfilled and satisfied with Him in His presence, experiencing peace that can only come through faith in Jesus. Peace, uh, uh, also at the end of chapter 2, we'll look at this next week, Paul says that each believer is being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. That's what will fulfill you. That's what you'll find satisfying. That's the hope and security that will not fade away. Peace among people whether that's in foreign relations, whether that's in your own home, or in a family at the brink of divorce, peace is only possible horizontally when those people have peace with God vertically. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified declared righteous on account of what Jesus has done on the cross. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, not in anything of our own doing, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He gets all the credit. How do we have peace What is real and lasting peace? It's being right with God vertically through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We all want peace for ourselves in our closest relationships. We all want peace for our world, whether the hostility is between Jew and Arab or Indian and Pakistani or Croat and Serb. We want it. It's good. It's harmonious. But real and lasting peace is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus intends to give His people more than lack of strife, more than a demilitarized zone, more than a lasting ceasefire. Jesus intends to make us one new humanity, lastly. When uh, water from the great Missouri River joins in to the mighty Mississippi at St. Louis, what flows down to the Gulf of Mexico is not called the Missouri-Mississippi River. If you take a look at this graphic, the Missouri River is something else. It covers um, almost 1,500 miles, I believe. No, the, the lower part after St. Louis is called the Mississippi. The lesser is folded into the greater. That's not what's going on here in the uniting of Jew and Gentile. One is not folded into the other. Jesus' purpose, verse 15, was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And by the way, some of you will say, well, Romans 11, ingrafting of the Gentiles into the Jews, talk to me in the hallway afterwards, okay? Those two ideas are consistent with one another. One new humanity, that is the identity of the church, not just GRC, the church of Jesus Christ. This is not a club that is all about giving you privileges and services, meeting people's needs, although that does happen, and people are blessed. That's not why we exist. That's not what we're about. You shouldn't stick around here because you're impressed with the the building or the programs or the music or the preaching. You should stick around here because you long to commit your life to something, or rather someone greater than any human endeavor. You should stick around here because you want to invest your life and sacrifice everything for that which will last for eternity. It is so tempting for Christians to tisk at people, though, to act like those insiders, to act like we've done something to deserve where we are, tisk at people who believe this or to act like that. And so very often it happens inside the walls of the church. I can't believe there was only cheese and crackers out today. They ran out of coffee. I'm not coming back. It happens, people. The music, the music, uh, didn't like two out of those seven songs. I couldn't worship today. The sermon, it was tolerable, but I prefer the 17 pastors that I podcast on my drive into work every morning. They're more dynamic. They, they feed me the way my heart needs to be fed. If those thoughts distract you from worship and service and one-anothering and mission, you've got it all wrong. GRC is all about, or needs to be when we fail, all about the work of Christ. So we're here not to be pleased, not to be satisfied, but to participate with the King in His creation of a new humanity. That's the mission of the church. Our differences, and there are many in this Bergen County multi-ethnic church, our differences 
need to be celebrated, not pointed out as weird, certainly not um, cause for division. The central reality is that if we're united to Christ by faith, each of us, then we're reconciled to God Himself, vertical, peace, and that unity should cause any cultural and racial and social and nationalistic differences and even political differences to fade into the background. I'll close with a, what I'd call a, um, a complementary verse from the Apostle Peter, first chapter, uh, first Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten. GRC, this is who you are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So live in light of this identity. Let's pray. Lord, Forgive us when we chase after that which is no peace. Forgive us when we settle for cheap substitutes that might last for a a moment, a day, a year, even a generation. Forgive us when we think that political accomplishments and treaties and laying down of arms is the peace that we need and crave only the peace that passes all understanding, only the peace that reconciles us as creatures to our Creator. That alone is worth living and dying for. And remind us when we forget, it is only access, but it is ours through faith in Jesus, Savior, Lord, King. We pray in His name. Amen.